And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Joe Neguse, the young congressman from Colorado, is only entering his third year in Congress, and yet he's already begun to make his mark. The son of African immigrants has emerged as one of the notable young leaders in Washington. His eloquence was on full display during the recent impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. I sat down with Neguse this week to talk about some breaking news and try to learn more about him. Here's that conversation. Congressman Joe Neguse, it's it's really good to uh, it's good to meet you. You are a um, suddenly a nationally known figure uh, by dint of your uh, your work on the uh, on the impeachment as an impeachment manager uh, in the Senate. Um, but you've got a great story, and I'm really eager to to uh, explore it. Uh, in addition to the issues uh, of that experience that that experience raises, so welcome. Well, thank you, David. It's a real pleasure for me. It's it's uh, so nice to meet you, and glad to glad to be on your uh, your podcast. Tell me about your your family history. You you um, you referenced it in your oratory and your presentations uh, during that impeachment trial, and you've talked about it elsewhere. Uh, but I don't know that people know that much about uh, your family and um, and their history. Uh, share to me uh, your parents' experience. Uh, you're a first term. You're a first term. You're a second term congressman and a first generation American. Um, so. Tell me about their journey from Eritrea. Yeah, sure. Well, you're right. So I, um, you know, I'm a proud Coloradan. I've lived in Colorado almost all my life. But uh, my parents' uh, story, my family story, like so many other Americans, is an immigrant story. Uh, my folks came here to the United States uh, over 40 years ago as refugees from a small country in East Africa called Eritrea, uh, which at the time was uh, in a civil war uh, with uh, Ethiopia. Uh, they uh, came to the United States, uh, you know, were welcomed here with open arms, uh, many in the Eritrean community. Tell me what you know of their experience there. What, you know, there, there were two civil wars um, in short sequence uh, there, and obviously Ethiopia was involved uh, in all of this. But uh, tell me what that meant for their lives there. What, what stories did they share with you about their lives and what caused them to leave? Yeah, you know, they, so as you, just as you referenced, uh, Eritrea, it was a 30-year war of independence, um, essentially. Uh, Eritrea had been annexed uh, as part of Ethiopia back in the early uh, 60s, and, and so a 30-year war of independence ensued that ultimately, uh, you know, concluded with, uh, with Eritrea, uh, you know, being its own country in, in the early 90s. They both left Eritrea at a fairly young age. Uh, you know, they were... Uh, you know, both my dad was in his twenties uh, and uh, mom was in her late teens. Uh, you know, and they came over separately. They didn't know each other. They met the Eritrean community at that time. Eritrean refugees were being uh, admitted to you know various different countries all over the world. I have cousins and family members that live in uh, countries like Germany and England and France. Um, and in the United States, there were many Eritreans who uh, settled in California, Washington State, New York. My parents uh, were both in California, so they actually met in a small town called Bakersfield, California, uh, and that's yes, where I was sure. born, uh, and where my sister was born. Uh, she's a year younger than me. Uh, we both lived there until we were, I was about six years old when 
uh, my dad uh, was transferred for a job uh, to Colorado. So, you know, my dad, I mean, he, he went to school uh, at uh, Cal State Bakersfield in California. He became an accountant. My mom was a bank teller. Um, they worked incredibly hard at, to make sure that, you know, me and my sister could have the kind of opportunities that they could never dream of. Do you still have relatives there? Yeah. Uh, most of my relatives uh, are, are there. When you went back, I know you went back on a uh, Codell in 2019 as a congressman. Um, ha- have you been back much to Eritrea? I have not. Um, you know, I had been back as a child early, I think when I was 11 or 12, and then once more when I was uh, 17. Uh, but, uh, you know, since then had not gone back until the Codell that you mentioned uh, which was a Codel to Ethiopia, but we we also uh, did a visit with Chairwoman Bass to Eritrea for you know about less than a day, essentially. Uh, but I have not have been back uh, regularly. That must have been something, though, to go back. I mean, here you are, a first generation mayor. I know I felt that when I traveled with the president to Eastern Europe as his senior advisor, how moving it was to think about in one generation that uh, he he. F- he and his family fled, you know, violence and tyranny and came here hope, with hope. And there I was standing next to the president of the United States in, in Red Square, listening to the national anthem, our national anthem, uh, being played by the, the Russian army band. And it was moving to think about what they sacrificed and what their hopes were. And that, you know, just one generation later, I could be in that position. And you must have felt some of that when you went back. I did. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm sure this had the same pe- impact on you, David. I watched uh, Judge Garland's, well, Attorney General designate Garland, I should say, his testimony yes. before the Judiciary Committee. And when he talked about his you know, family's journey and, and uh, uh, their you know, coming into the United States and as, uh, as a, uh, uh, given his background and his immigrant background, his deep desire to pay it forward and to pay back this country that you know, he really felt like he owed a debt to. That resonated with me and I suspect with many others across uh, across our country. And so, yes, I think in that, you know, that trip for me, if anything, underscored the real promise of America. I mean, the notion that my parents could come to the United States with very, very little and uh, sacrifice so much that only one generation removed 40 years later, uh, their son could serve in the United States House of Representatives. Uh, I, I, I mean, I legitimately believe I don't think that that's possible. Uh, in any other country in the world. It is uh, unique to the United States. And so I, it's, uh, it, it matters a great deal to me. And, and I think it's reflective of America at its best, right? Honoring the ideals of, of being able to welcome folks who seek refuge from across the globe. Um, and obviously that was we, a principle that was deeply damaged under the prior administration and that we're finally beginning to recover now uh, in the early days of the Biden administration. But yes, no, I, it was a, I definitely... A lot of feelings uh, in that regard uh, during that trip. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Ronald Reagan was president when your parents came over. That's right. And it was a much different, you know, our attitude toward refugees, or at least the government's attitude toward refugees, were much different than what we've seen in the last four years. It's become uh, a polarizing uh, issue. Uh, And um, this must animate you in these debates, um, knowing your own uh, family history and the contribution that you and your family have made to the country and so many other immigrants and refugees have made to this country. It literally is what keeps uh, America young. 
Well, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, Ronald Reagan, uh, many presidents, Republican and Democratic, have often talked about, uh, uh, you know, our nation being a nation of immigrants. And as you said, uh, you know, kind of uh, it, it keeping our country the dynamic, robust, young, hopeful, idealistic country that we are. And uh, as I said, I, I think the last several years were deeply damaging to those principles um, that have guided our country so well and, and that have obviously played a a, a defining role in my life and in my family's journey um, to this country. And it's one of the reasons why I decided to run for Congress, uh, you know, three years ago uh, during the, uh, uh, you know, the, the depths of the Trump administration and seeing what he was doing uh, with respect to immigration and, and feeling as though my voice might be one that could add uh, some value to this particular debate. There is a debate going on right now because uh... President Biden is trying to reverse some of the policies of the last administration relative to immigration and many other things. Uh, One of your colleagues, uh, Congressman Cuellar uh, uh, from Texas, uh, said uh, the other day that he was he was concerned, though, that um, handled wrong, you could have a replication of what we saw at the border uh, in 2000. And 18 and in 2014, where a rush of people come, um, often being told that they could enter uh, freely and uh, and creating a huge uh, problem. What are the what are the challenges of uh, of reversing these policies, implementing a um, a humane but, you know, predictable and regulated flow? of refugees and immigrants. Yeah, I, I think the words you used are key, David, predictable, uh, regular, secured, right? I mean, I, in my view, I have great respect for my colleague uh, that you referenced, but I, and there are no doubt a set of very complex technical issues around immigration enforcement and uh, some of the decisions that will have to be made on our southern border. But I also think it's important for you know contextual purposes to remember, and you know this, but I think it can get lost sometimes on the American public, the night and day approach generally to immigration that this administration is pursuing versus the last one, right? I mean, the the last administration just had no regard, I think, for the value that immigrants bring to the table uh, and being a a core part of our country and the melting pot that is the United States of America. And that that is clearly not the case with respect to President Biden and the, the cabinet that he's assembled. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be some some thorny, complex policy issues that, you know, the Department of Homeland Security is going to have to work out in consultation with Congress and in particular with those lawmakers uh, that uh, represent districts on our southern border. Uh, And obviously immigration is a huge issue here in in my state of Colorado. But part of it, I would just say also, and you've been following these issues and active in them so long that uh, you're, uh, I suspect you may agree, part of it is that Congress has largely abdicated its role as far as immigration regulation and, and uh, immigration law is concerned. I, I serve on the immigration subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee, which used to be a very active committee, um, you know, it, it largely responsible for writing the various immigration laws that we have on the books today, including the re- big reform that was passed during Ronald Reagan's presidency. We have not done much in the way of legislating. Uh, immigration reform has been largely a matter of for the executive uh, to uh, to determine. And, and well, to- you know, there, there's a reason for that. I mean, you say that the last administration didn't appreciate the value 
of immigrants. I think they appreciated the value of the the issue uh, of immigration, uh, but in the opposite way. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump came down the escalator at uh, Trump Tower, and uh, the the takeaway from that that announcement speech was his virulent assault on immigration uh, from Mexico. Uh, his first uh, one of his first actions was uh, you know, the total uh, a ban on Muslims or the ban on Muslims, I should say, uh, entering the country. He ratcheted down refugees coming to this country and propagated the notion that, you know, these uh, refugees were dangerous, that these immigrants were sucking down benefits and taking American jobs. And he found an audience for that. And I'm sure that as you talk to your colleagues, and I know that you you, you have friends across the aisle in Congress. I mean, that is a powerful meme out there. And, you know, the reason that presidents have acted uh, uh, unilaterally on immigration is because Congress couldn't get it together to act on immigration. Each time an immigration reform was passed in one chamber of Congress, it was defeated. The other, the House defeated an immigration reform bill during the Obama administration or wouldn't even take it up. Uh, That's right. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, notwithstanding the broad consensus that at least used to exist amongst most folks in Congress, around immigration reform and the, the contours of what a compromise might look like. Of course, that's been, as you said, completely eviscerated by virtue of politicians who you know, choose to demagogue and, and use the issue of immigration to, to demonize uh, certain parts of our population. And, and they've done that you know, with great political effect, as you mentioned. Um, obviously, I think that that's my hope is we could turn the page on that. But you're not, you're not perhaps I'm a bit naive, you're, you're not wrong to suggest that maybe it uh, will nonetheless be difficult for Congress to get its act together in light of the powerful and potent political tool uh, that uh, this issue has developed into for a certain part of uh, of our political system for, for some Republicans in Congress. President Biden has uh, has actually uh, uh, come forth with a immigration reform plan. It's actually uh, more uh, uh, aggressive in its uh, in its reforms than uh than previous proposals. Um, but what's your candid assessment? I know you're endlessly optimistic, and I, <laughs> and I appreciate that. But I also know you're a shrewd uh, politician and student of, of the Congress. I mean, what are the chances of passing that uh, immigration bill through a House that is rather not narrowly divided right now, and then through the Senate with the filibuster? Yeah, I'd say sort of two separate questions, two separate answers. With respect to the first question, I actually think the answer is yes. I think we can get the, the president's uh, immigration, uh, the Citizenship Act of uh, 2021 that uh, Linda Sanchez uh, is, is leading in the House. I think we can get it through the lower chamber. I, I really do. Uh, it's not to suggest that there aren't going to be some compromises and, and some you know revisions to the ultimate language that was introduced. But nonetheless, I think it, it is uh, within sight. Now, that being said, the tougher answer is to the second question. And uh, I, of course, am in the House, not the Senate. You have far more familiarity <laughs> with the, the rules of the Senate than I do. But I, I think that that's a tougher battle. Um, I, I would say this, though. There does seem to be consensus emerging that if, if we're unable to get a comprehensive bill done, which, of course, has to be the central goal, it's my goal. And I think that's shared by certainly most in the House Democratic Caucus. We also have to be prepared to do as much as we can. Uh, for as many people as we can, right? To do as much good 
as we are capable of doing within the political structure that exists in Washington, which means the Dream and Promise Act, which is a bipartisan bill, uh, has Republican support in the House, and I think could very well muster sufficient votes to overcome a filibuster in the Senate. We ought not uh, abandon that and, and that potential course of action. I have many dreamers in my uh, district who I've met with. I actually, my first State of the Union, uh, the, the first State of the Union rather that I'd ever attended, uh, as both a citizen and as a member of Congress, uh, was in 2019. And I brought as my first guest, as you know, members of the House have a guest that they can bring, uh, a young dreamer named Elias, who a, was a student at Colorado State University, brilliant young kid who, you know, is really known no other country but the United States as his home. He came here at a very young age, didn't know uh, that he wasn't born in the United States until uh, he had uh, was applying for college. And, you know, I, I, for me, I made a promise to him, and so did many others, that that we would ensure we take every step we can to ensure that he has a place in this country that, uh, that you know, we both are so lucky and blessed to call home. So I, I don't, I think we have to be prepared to move on whatever pieces or components of the legislation can garner a sufficient, you know, majority to get to the president's desk. And there is broad public support for uh, addressing this issue of the dreamers, these young people who were brought here by their parents, as you say, have known no other country, are contributors, splendid Students, some serve in the military. I mean, it's a very persuasive case. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Even though you pose as a naive House member, you're a... (laughs) You're a student of the process, and you got a little taste of the process, which we'll talk about later uh, when you spent a few days in the Senate earlier this year on the impeachment, where you had an even steeper number of votes necessary to achieve a conviction. But 60 votes is a lot of votes to get in the United States Senate. A lot of your colleagues and a lot of uh, Democrats uh, think the Democrat majority in the Senate should abolish the filibuster because it stands in the way of legislation like the immigration reform, like perhaps the minimum wage if it's not included in this reconciliation bill around COVID. Where, where are you on that? It's a good question. It's a fair question. And I, and I will answer it directly. However, I want to preface it with, I, I'm not trying to be uh, obtuse or... Uh, you well, know, if you preface it, then you're not answering it directly. I, you know, I, I'll say this. I, no, I, 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 just, I think it's important no, I'm just for, kidding. Your, for your listeners, right, to know that it's a tough question. I, I don't think it's black and white. And I, I think it's there are reasonable arguments on both sides of this debate, right? Um, I, I've been worried for a long time about the constitutional hardball that uh, the leader, uh, you know, minority leader now, the former majority leader, in my view, had started years ago and uh, that has sort of created this race to the bottom. And there is there are reasonable arguments about Mitch by McConnell. people that I respect. I'm talking about Mitch McConnell. Yes. Reasonable arguments by people I respect who have, you know, made the case that uh, to, to, to move forward on the course that you described would have collateral consequences down the road that would not, you know, inert to the benefit of the people that we represent. That being said, all that being said, I, I will say it this way. I, uh, in August had the opportunity to travel to Atlanta, uh, and it's my first trip to Ebenezer Baptist Church. 
to mourn uh-huh. uh, the loss of John Lewis, who, of course, you know well. Yes. A treasured colleague and, you know, a giant among giants. And yeah, uh, President man. Obama, your former boss, uh, you know, spoke and gave uh, just a brilliant eulogy. And to, to sit there in those pews and listen to our country's first black president, someone who had inspired me and so many others to pursue public service, to hear him articulate the reasons why, um, perhaps obliquely, that, you know, why we'd potentially need to be prepared uh, to uh, you know, push push aside the, the, the filibuster for something as important as the Voting Rights Act, which is you know, structural yes. in terms of our democracy. I, that argument appeals to me. I mean, I, I, I do mm-hmm. think the filibuster is in need of reform. What type of reform? I think that is uh, a more, you know, a tougher question and a, a question that probably merits more conversation than the than, than the time we have. But that's that's where I live. Yeah, on the, vo- on the Voting Rights Act, because I wanted to get back to the thread of your own story, but on the Voting Rights Act, you've had, you know, hundreds of pieces of legislation introduced in states across the country, almost entirely by Republicans, after this 2020 election, that, uh, you know, to, to roll back early voting, to roll back same-day registration, to toughen voter ID laws, all of which appear to be aimed at reducing voter participation, something I know you've worked on all your life. Do you anticipate this Voting Rights Act moving quickly here? And is that is that going to be the flare point over a potential fight on the filibuster? I, I think that that's correct. I think the Voting Rights Act and H.R. 1 um, will both pass yes. the House in short order. And I think that both of them will serve in large part as the, the flare point, as you described it, I think, accurately, for this this, this question, and that we're, we're going to have to resolve it one way or the other. And obviously, uh, you know, that's going to be a question that the Senate has to, the Senate House Democratic Caucus has to uh, kind of resolve, uh, but ultimately a question that the American people are going to, you know, be resolving as well. So I, yeah, it's that, I, I think that you're, that that sequencing is probably right. One last uh, question on, on, on this whole procedural thing, because it is important. It does, it, it's meaningful if legislation can or can't pass the United States Senate. But there's a lot of pressure on uh, the vice president right now, Kamala Harris, to overrule the Senate parliamentarian and allow a vote on the $15 minimum wage, something I know you fought for in this reconciliation bill. Are you among those who believe that she should overrule a parliamentarian? Should she use her chair? It doesn't seem like the administration's that eager for that to happen. Ultimately, where I landed on that, I have great respect for many of my colleagues who you know, believe passionately that uh, she, that the presiding officer, which uh, in this case could be the vice president, should exercise her discretion in that way. Uh, I, I think on balance, my sense was that I'm, I'm not in a position to tell the vice president of the United States, what to do in that regard. That that decision is something that she, a decision she's going to have to reach in consultation with the Senate Majority Leader, with the Budget Chairman, Senator Sanders, and others uh, to make a conclusion about what works best. Again, I, I guess I would just also caution that these decisions we make today will have consequences tomorrow. And so it's not to suggest that I'm not supportive of doing everything we can to make sure the minimum wage is part of the reconciliation bill. I have been a, a, an advocate for that uh, for a long yeah. time. But I, I think you it's, ran on it. Yeah. It, it's worth at least taking a step back and, and considering it. And it may be that on balance, balancing the equities, the conclusion is reached that, uh, that, uh, that she should reverse, uh, or not reverse rather, but disregard the advisory opinion by the parliamentarian. But that, that'll ultimately be a decision up to 
the vice president, Majority Leader Schumer and Senator Sanders and the others in the caucus. You know, it strikes me that she is in a really difficult spot, not just on this, but generally, because though, you know, no one would say at this point that President Biden wouldn't run, won't run for reelection. The chances are at 82 that he, he, he might not. That makes her the putative kind of front runner uh, for that office. So in a sense, everything that he does that irritates uh, some faction within the party uh, and you know the 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 the, the most active uh, faction uh, within the party are, are progressives uh, goes on her account and not his, uh, and it seems to me that's a very tough spot for her because she I'm sure wants to be a, a, a loyal and useful partner uh, to him as he was to President Obama, uh, but um, you know she's got pressures that he didn't have. Well, you know, I, I prefaced this in the beginning, as I said, uh, you, you've won two presidential campaigns, a senatorial campaign, and many others. I am but a two-term House member. So my, uh, my views on the political, <laughs> you know, uh, prognosis of uh, the vice president, uh, you know, in, in a future election are probably not as, not, yours are, I, I trust yours far better than my own. But I, but I hear you. I mean, you're not, what you're saying is certainly not... Um, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's fair to you know, kind of assess the situation as it stands today. I, I, look, I think part of my frustration has been the bill that we passed on Friday, and I, I was in the House when we you know voted on that at two a.m. in the morning. It is, and the you know, package, from, yeah. the whole package. You know this from your time during uh, the Obama administration, right? It is almost double, or a little over double, the stimulus bill that was approved at the depths of the Great Recession in two thousand nine. There is a lot of very positive, substantive uh, provisions, are there are rather, in this bill that will do a lot of good for the people of our country. And I, I just would hope that, you know, the public can recognize uh, all the all that this bill entails and the ways in which I think it's going to provide an economic lifeline to a lot of people, not to minimize the conversation around the pieces. That Even if it doesn't include the minimum wage. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, right? 25% of this bill uh, roughly over $400 billion of it is, uh, it constitutes the direct stimulus checks, the $1,400 checks that many Americans, uh, hardworking Americans are going to receive in just a few weeks once the bill is signed by the president, right? It includes massive investments that would cut childhood poverty, uh, child tax, tax credits that people like uh, my senator, Senator Michael Bennett, have been working on for essentially yeah. his entire career. So there's a lot right. in this bill to be proud of. Um, I'm going to continue to push for the minimum wage. I would hope that the Senate would use, you know, every avenue that they can pursue to to get it done. But I, I'm also, you know, not going to presuppose that I tell them how to how to run the Senate. <laughs> I think that was deft, <laughs> a deft answer to a difficult question. I agree with you. I mean, I think uh, look, governing is filled with frustration. Democracy is. Uh, it demands compromise. Compromise is not a word that people uh, like to hear, uh, but uh, but democracy demands it. And if what you get, you know, every president I know has said the same thing. If I can get 80 percent of what I want, I'm taking that deal. And I'm sure President Biden feels uh, the same way, especially given the crisis the country faces. Let, let's return to your story, because you mentioned that your, your folks uh, moved when you were six years old to Colorado. You settled down in a town called Highlands Ranch, Colorado. And I'm wondering what that was like for you. Highlands Ranch is a is an area that it's, a I would guess, 90% white and probably 
certainly was that much when you were there. So you, uh, you know, tell me what it was like for you as a young child of, of immigrants, a person of color in the schools when you were a kid. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so as you mentioned, we actually we settled in Highland Ranch. We lived in a number of different places when we moved initially yeah. to Colorado. But uh, And Colorado is a state, as I'm sure you know, and you've been here many times uh, uh, before. Uh, you know, it's 80, roughly 80% white. Um, the congressional district that I represent now uh, today is about 1% black. Um, so the, the statewide population uh, of African-Americans is roughly 4%. Um, it's not a particularly diverse community, as you mentioned. Um, but look, I, I'd say for me, growing up in Colorado, and, um, and not just with respect to Highland Ranch, but also just in general, and, and the communities that I call home today and, and have represented in Congress and have been living in for the last uh, 20 or 18 years, uh, have been very inclusive, tolerant communities. Colorado, uh, and again, I, I, I suspect you may agree, having traveled to the state so many times, it's a state where people are uh, you know, generally very, it's, it, there's sort of this Westerner ethos, right, of, uh, of uh, you know, live and let live and, and, and not, you know, I think uh, judging folks, you know, books by their cover and, and, uh, and uh, you know, being a, a kind of community that welcomes folks across, who have different, you know, come from different walks of life. Uh, so, again, not to suggest that uh, there aren't uh, hurdles that, you know, you face as, uh, as uh, an immigrant, in the case of my parents, or as a son of immigrants, or as a person of color, there certainly are. Um, but I, I yeah, I, I've been really lucky and blessed to live in a community that has really welcomed me. You didn't experience any sense of being the other or being separate from other kids when you were growing up in that town? I, you know, look, you're all, every person's going to have those experiences. There's, I'm not going to tell you that there aren't times that I've felt that way, um, you know, throughout the course of my life. But no, on, on balance, I think, as I've said, my experience has been a positive one. Yeah, well, you also, you know, uh, you talked earlier about uh, giving back and working hard and so on. I mean, your story, you you couldn't write a a more inspiring story, you know, uh, academic excellence, class president, University of Colorado, more of the same. You really early on got into, you were attracted to politics, you were attracted to student governance, but also interned in with the Speaker of the House in, uh, in Colorado. What attracted you to that? You know, I, um, I neither of my parents are lawyers or politicians, uh, nor any, you know, everybody in my extended family. Um, I, I, at a very early age, I, I knew that I wanted to pursue public service. Uh, there, you know, any number of reasons why. I mean, one, I, I just you know, being in student government, <laughs> most simplistically, I, I enjoyed Know, kind of leading a team and, and trying to you know problem solve with a group of people who might be very different than me, right? Um, and of course, given the community that I grew up in, that was that was generally always the case. Uh, and I, I found that kind of work really uh, interesting and motivating, right? To try to to convince folks who might have completely different worldviews than your own to join together for a common purpose, um, whatever that purpose might be. And uh, yeah, I, I got involved in student government when I was in college and. Worked uh, for uh, a while for the Speaker of the House at the Colorado Legislature, which really uh, kind of opened my eyes to the legislative process, uh, and then ran for the Board of Regents um, when I was in uh, uh, law school and, and was elected it's to the a board. Statewide, statewide position. Uh, congressional district. So it was the same same congressional district that I represent now in the Congress, the second district. Um, and it, that you know experience was it was the year that uh, of course 
that uh, President Obama was elected in 2008. And uh, it was just an exciting time. Uh, and you know, You're 24 years old. Uh, yeah, so I was 24, um, got elected in, uh, in 2008 and served on the board for uh, six years. Uh, again, really incredible work for me. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. It was, you know, it, it, trying to develop coalitions amongst a board. It's essentially Colorado's higher education board, but it's unlike most states elected. Uh, in most states, those boards are appointed by the governor. Uh, but in Colorado, and three other states, yeah. uh, the members are elected. And so, yeah, I, it actually, it's the uh, it, serving in that capacity was the first opportunity I had to meet uh, President Obama, and uh, uh, which was a you know an experience that I'll never forget. Um, so, I, yeah, it's it. I've been lucky. As I, I, said, I remember the really, first time I met him too. <laughs> I think your experience. Is it was a, a good experience for me, also. Yeah, it was a good experience <laughs> for me, also. Hey, you know, I, I don't want to beat this to death, but it interests me when I had Sanjay Gupta on the podcast sometime last year during the, you know, to talk about the COVID crisis, but also his own life. And Sanjay, like yourself, was a stellar student. He's a, also from an immigrant family, I should say, stellar student. And he said, he, you know, he joined everything and he wanted to be a part of everything because, because he felt that was the way to be accepted. That was the way to feel like he was really part of everything which he said he didn't always he didn't always feel. And I was just wondering if 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 there was something of that in your motivation as well. Yeah, no, you know, for me it was uh, to be candid, I mean it, it, it not so much that although I, I understand what the doctor is saying. Honestly, it was much more again this this the 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 value that my parents had instilled in me and my sister that we were very lucky because Unlike so many of our family members, uh, we, you know, had, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's akin to winning the lottery, right? We, we uh, had the privilege of being born in the United States of America, where you can be anything you want to be if you work hard enough and you have the freedoms and the opportunities to live your dreams. And they very much, it was, you know, it was very important in our household uh, to my parents. And I credit them uh, to, you know, to the extent we've, I've had any success, it's been because of them, um, because they, it was very important to them early on. And so that, for, for whatever reason, it instilled, I think, in me this sort of sense that I would try to, um, you know, to be active participant in, you know, a variety of different public service endeavors and, and to, you know, to take advantage of those opportunities to, to play a role um, because those are opportunities that uh, a lot of people in the world don't have. Um, there, there are many places in the world where there is no right to vote. There's no right to run for public office. You didn't just seize opportunities, but you created uh, them. You started a, a group with some others called New Era Colorado while you were a student in between, I guess, college and law school. Uh, and uh, the purpose of which was to really, and I'm, this is near and dear to my heart because I'm the director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, which has a similar mission, but to uh, engage and empower students, uh, not just to vote, but to be civically um, active. Um, and that's, that's had quite a bit of success. Yeah, it was, I mean, an incredibly exciting endeavor. Myself and some colleagues of mine had decided that we just thought that the conventional structures for getting involved politically really weren't available to young people, right? You know, it's not easy for a young person to go become a precinct committee person within one of the political parties, right? Uh, it just That's just not a, a system that's particularly, um, you know, structured in a way that attracts young people. And so our thought was, 
But why not create an organization that was purely focused on getting young people more involved in politics, more involved civically, irrespective of one's own political preferences, right? For us, it wasn't, you know, it doesn't matter if you're voting Republican or Democratic, we just wanted young people to vote and to register to vote. And that if they did that, they'd be far more inclined, uh, or rather the public officials would be far more inclined to uh, to focus in on issues that young people care about. So yeah, the organization was started with one employee who's a friend of mine who now uh, is the Senate majority leader in the state Senate um, here in Colorado. And, uh, you know, it, it blossomed into an organization that's registered, I think over 165,000 young people across the state, uh, helped shepherd some of the most important uh, reforms early on uh, in terms of online voter registration, pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds. So yeah, very exciting. And, uh, you know, glad that we were able to hand the reins off long ago, I must say, because, you know, it was, we started the organization yeah. and then kind of let other young people take the lead. But it's still functioning. It is. Yeah. To this day, it's still functioning. I, you know, we, yeah. I left the organization, I think, a long time ago, over a decade ago. But it's, uh, it continues to this day. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You practiced law, but you uh, also ran in, in uh, 2014 uh, for Secretary of State, which is a statewide position, obviously, uh, in Colorado. And you came awfully close. Uh, you lost by two points. As, as you yeah, remember. It was a tough year uh, for Democrats. <laughs> yes, I remember it very well. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, you know, I, again, similar to when I ran for region, I, I, I thought that uh, I, I could help make a difference in that particular role that I was running for at the time. Uh, we had a secretary of state that, uh, you know, I believed was, was creating more hurdles uh, for folks to be able to ultimately register and be able to participate in the electoral process. So I tossed my hat in the ring and, uh, you know, spent the better part of a year and a half traveling our wonderful state and uh, came awfully close. As you said, uh, it was the year, of course, that we lost uh, control of the United States Senate. Um, and uh, Senator Udall here in Colorado lost his election, as did uh, uh, every other person running for a constitutional office, with the exception of our governor. Uh, but, I, you know, I made a lot of friends in the process, uh, including the, the individual who ultimately beat me, who became the Republican Secretary of State and who remains a good friend to this day. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a fascinating race. And obviously, I learned a lot on that campaign. Yeah. And, and the fact that you did so well uh, under, as you point out, in a bad Democratic year does speak to uh, Colorado's um, receptivity uh, to diverse candidates, talented, diverse candidates. Um, I, I, when you said that before, I thought, well, I, I also ought to point out that you have a congresswoman uh, from your state who uh, is a QAnon uh, adherent and came to the House chambers with a with a gun. So, um, I mean, tolerance, that doesn't bespeak tolerance. And it does speak to the fact that you have a, the, it is a diverse state and there are pockets of, uh, of deep conservatism there. And, um, so we, you're, you're a sunny side up guy, but I, I think <laughs> it, it's worth pointing out because th these are the divisions that, that we have in our country. That's true. No, it's, we're a microcosm of America, right? But I, I, as you said, I'm a sunny side guy, and I tend to focus in on, you know, in the last four years, Colorado elected its first gay governor, uh, one of only two gay governors serving in the United States, Jared Polis, who 
was my predecessor in Congress and elected the state's first black congressman um, when I was elected two years, three years ago now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, I am sunny side up to a fault, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> we, are, we are a very diverse state, and uh, it's, it's not to suggest that there aren't deep divisions that we have to work through. There certainly are. And the story continues, extraordinary story. When you were 31, you were uh, appointed the, the director of the State Department of Regulatory Affairs. And just to be clear, that includes the Civil Rights Division in the state, the Office of Consumer uh, Council, and the Public Utilities Commission. So quite a portfolio, 600 employees. Um, that, that was a big role for someone who really hadn't managed a large organization before. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. As you said, the agencies that are included as part of the Department of Regulatory Agencies, kind of an obscure sounding name for the department, but you know, it's essentially the counterpart to the CFPB or the SEC at the federal level. Um, and they do incredibly important work, you know, protecting consumers every day, uh, you know, pushing to make sure that the little guy, right, is protected here in Colorado. Uh, whether it's insurance complaints or regulating the banks and so forth. And it was incredibly enlightening for me to be able to have that experience of managing an agency with 600 employees and, you know, developing a team and trying to, again, push towards a common agenda. And I'm, I will be forever grateful to Governor Hickenlooper, who, you know, gave me that opportunity, appointed me. His Here you can walk across the rotunda and thank him anytime you want. Now, well, that's, so. I see him more often now than I have uh, you know, in a few years, of course, saw him more often when I was in his cabinet. But yes, now that he's Senator Hickenlooper, we have another opportunity to, to partner with each other. But no, I, you know, I had met him during the course of campaigning across the state when I was running for Secretary of State. And so when he called and offered me this opportunity, um, I, you know, I thought that it would be a, a great way to, to serve the state. And so decided to uh, decided to take it. But, I, you know, it, it was not part of any uh, kind of careful plan, I should say. You know, it's a, that that's not you don't really run for Congress uh, by, you know, running for regent and then, uh, you know, becoming DORA director. <laughs> the question really is, you, you've now had a, a taste of managing, of being an executive and a legislator, and I'm wondering which appeals to you more. I have enjoyed both jobs tremendously. <laughs> Somehow I, I knew say, you were going to say but, that. No, but, no, but I will say there's something unique about managing a large agency, um, you know, and the ability to, you know, we have a wonderful team in my congressional office of staff who work tremendously hard and, and you know, the same principles apply in terms of, you know, developing a, a common purpose and, and pushing towards that, you know, that, that purpose and achieving it. But again, something very unique when you're managing that large of an agency, it, uh, it's, it's incredibly uh, exciting and, and uh, you learn a lot. And so, yeah, I, it's a tough question, but I, I think that's, that's probably where I tend to well, it's one you're going to probably have to confront at some point as your career advances here, because there'll be opportunities on the, both uh, the executive and the legislative side. Let's talk about uh, the thing that brought you to really national attention in the last month, and that was the events of uh, January 6th and the impeachment that followed. First of all, tell me a little bit. I know you were one of the designees who fought off these uh, challenges to the Electoral College. Um, and so you were deeply engaged that day before the insurrection broke out. Tell me what that experience was like. You were in the middle of debate when all hell broke loose. Yeah, you know, as you said, I, I was on the floor uh, with uh, my friend Jamie Raskin and uh, Chairman Schiff and Chairwoman Lofgren as we were leading the 
opposition to the objections that were made by some of our colleagues. And so I was very focused on that, uh, to be candid, and was not fully aware as to kind of what was happening outside of the Capitol. It wasn't really until I started receiving, you know, some alarming texts from folks and from my wife. Uh, and then, you know, sort of rapid succession of seeing the Speaker of the House and others, uh, the majority leader, you know, being escorted from the House. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the police and sergeant at arms announcing to the, the House chamber that uh, the rioters had breached the uh, the Capitol. And, you know, we're in the Capitol Rotunda and that tear, ga- tear gas had been uh, deployed and that we needed to uh, retrieve our tear gas masks and just in case and, you know, prepare to take cover. And, uh, and then we were evacuated. And, you know, it, it just was a very. Well, think, what point did you uh, at what point did you say, holy shit, <laughs> this is really dangerous. We're, we're in the line of fire here. Yeah, it, it was after they had announced that uh, tear gas had been deployed in the Capitol Rotunda and that we needed to retrieve our tear gas masks. Um, and at that point, and the chaplain at, at some point there offered a prayer. You know, my wife texted me that uh, that they were, that the, these insurrectionists were in Statuary Hall, which, as you know, the Capitol complex right. fairly well, but that's, that's right, you know, outside the House chamber. So once that happened, uh, you know, a combination of those different events, it, it was very clear to me that things had gone terribly wrong. Uh, and yeah, it was, I mean, I, you think about the trauma that the country experienced that day and that everybody in the House gallery up uh, above or, you know, in, in different parts of the Capitol complex experienced. Uh, it's still to this day, I think, is, uh, has been a traumatic thing for a lot of people. Yeah, you have a two and a half year old child. So that adds a dimension, doesn't it? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, was uh, I, I texted my wife and you know told her that I loved her and uh, our daughter very much and you know told her everything would be fine. And um, you know, I, many of us. I mean, it's interesting you know, in Congress. I, I suspect I haven't looked at the empirical data that there are more young parents today serving in Congress than there have been in recent memory. As certainly, many of my closest friends in Congress are members on both sides of the aisle who have, you know, two, three, four, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, and uh, and so yeah, obviously that that's another dimension. I I will say this: I can't say enough good things, as I know so much of the country agrees about the Capitol Police officers who you know, really put themselves on the line. I mean, they just were so courageous to evacuate us and to protect folks, staff, everybody at the Capitol. It's really tremendous. That was just the beginning for you because that set the impeachment in motion. First of all, let me ask you a question about impeachment. You actually were one of the early people calling for President Trump to be impeached. I mean, early, early, early in your time in Washington. You may even said it during your campaign. I don't know. Did the early suggestions that Trump should be impeached on other grounds make this at all more complicated? Do you regret having said that then because it became a mantra for Republicans who were defending the president that this was just a fetish of Democrats? No. Look, I in 2019, I served on the House Judiciary Committee. There were many of us who ultimately called for an impeachment inquiry to begin after it was clear that the president was going to obstruct Congress in such a way that was unprecedented, right? And that the real uh, kind of focal point at that point was when he refused to have Don McGahn testify in front of the Judiciary Committee, right? Which was just, again, unprecedented in terms of prior presidential misconduct. Um, so no. This I was in the, Ru- I, anything, in the Russia I, probe, yeah. That's right, the, the, precisely. And I'd also say this, I think in some respects, the, the breaking of the norms that he was engaged in throughout his presidency, kind of, it made clear that the writing was on the wall, that perhaps this would be the culmination, right? What the, the, the final norm that 
he would undermine would be the peaceful transfer of power, which, of course, uh, yeah. was what happened on January 6th. So uh, you, you can draw a line. Yeah, you definitely can. I mean, look, the, uh, the Ukraine caper was really an effort to try and derail Biden, who he feared as a candidate. And so, as many others have said, there was an effort to try and cheat on the front end and an effort to try and overturn the results in the back end. So there is a, a straight line. But tell me what it was like those 27 days of uh, preparation and execution of the, uh, of the impeachment team. Yeah, it was an eventful few weeks. I mean, I, it was very intense in terms of the preparation and spent a great deal of time with my fellow managers and others, um, you know, our staff counsel, our, our lawyers, developing the arguments and deciding on the presentation of evidence and um, preparing our case. And then, of course, the trial itself, um, you know, you, you, you feel the weight of history standing in the well of the United States Senate. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I was honored. It was humbling. And obviously, I had hoped for a different outcome. And we, we all believed uh, very much legitimately believed that there was a possibility to get to 67 votes. Um, and lead manager Raskin felt that. I felt that. All of our my colleagues, we felt that that was within reach, just given the strength of the evidence. And obviously, you know, again, understanding the, the political wins as they were, but nonetheless, feeling as though if the senators looked at this in an impartial and objective way, they had to come to the same conclusion that Liz Cheney had come to. And so, uh, you know, we, yeah, we that's a that. really big if, though. Well, it's a really big if. As it, that's you are right. <laughs> that's uh, clearly. You got more votes uh, for conviction uh, from the president's own party than ever in history in any impeachment. That's correct. It was the most bipartisan impeachment vote conviction. Or excuse me, but impeachment vote, right? Acquittal or acquittal vote in this case. Um, but in the history of presidential impeachments, um, and you know the fact that. Yeah, that multiple senators chose to, you know, choose their country over party and did the right thing, I think, was a vindication of our decision to proceed. Tell me about uh, Jamie Raskin, because he tragically uh, lost his son in the midst of this. Uh, I mean, I guess it was the day before, a few days before New Year's Eve, so a few days before the insurrection. And, and then he was called upon to lead this process. And my editorial judgment was brilliantly, but geez, that must have been hard. How did he interact with all of you around all of that? I, I mean, one, Jamie's a, a dear, close personal friend, one of my closest friends in the Congress. Um, we served together in House leadership. We served together on the Judiciary Committee. And he's a, just a kind, decent man. He is someone who is universally liked by Republican and Democratic members of the Congress. Uh, and his leadership style is very much an egalitarian style. It's, it's very inclusive, it, which was really important. And I, and I think, and, you know, ultimately endeared him to every member of our team uh, and, and ultimately to the country as, uh, as the, you know, folks uh, you know, were able to, to see our presentation of the evidence. Um, he was disciplined. He was focused. He kept us on task. And I thought he did a phenomenal job. I, I, don't, I, I don't know where he found the, the strength to, uh, you know, to do something as hard as this was, uh, while simultaneously mourning uh, such a tragic loss, he, he's just a he's a, he's a courageous guy. I uh, recommend to anybody who hasn't read his tribute, the tribute he and his wife uh, wrote oh, to their tremendous. son, yeah, to Tommy. Tommy, yeah. Tommy, 
was one of the most wrenching and beautiful things that I've ever read. Any any parent and anyone with a beating heart would be moved by it. Um, when you talked to your guy, you, you, you saw Mitch McConnell, who essentially affirmed your case and then clung to, uh, you know, an argument that became a life raft for a lot of Republicans that you couldn't convict a president who already left office. When you talk to your colleagues, I mean, are people candid with you about the pressures that they faced? Yes. Oh, certainly. In the House, not so much, I don't have as many conversations with senators, but but yeah, in the House, you know, colleagues are very, some of them are honest about the unique pressures that they face. Look, you know this, David, the, the way in which redistricting has been performed in various states, it, it has created a situation where you have districts that are so heavily gerrymandered that, you know, you the, the, the incentive structure is such that uh, they take great political risk at, uh, you know, voting in a way that's inconsistent with the views of their constituency. And of course, you see this materializing, right, for the 10 who voted to, uh, to impeach in the House. Yeah, Trump read the role at CPAC yesterday. That's right. I def- yeah. Every single person who voted against him and uh, basically put a target on their back. Speaking of targets, um, you know, one of the really sad pieces of this is that everyone involved becomes a target and their families become targets. Have there been security issues uh, that you've had to face as a result of your participation in this process? Uh, there have, I, you know, I don't talk about it uh, publicly, and so I don't know that I would here. But I, you know, obviously, there, you know, we are in an environment now that's so deeply polarized, and passions are running so high that uh, it is, uh, it, it's, it is disappointing that <laughs> we've gotten to a, a place in our politics where uh, people have to fear for their own personal safety or the safety of their families. But yeah, disappointment. I mean, how about scary? Yeah, scary, scary is the right word, perhaps the better word. But yeah, I, we don't. We're we're grateful to you know local law enforcement and the Capitol Police and others who you know have worked with uh, with us and you know with every with other managers and and with you know other I suspect Republican members of Congress who, by the way, have had a far greater challenge in terms of dealing with these kinds of issues, as you can imagine, uh, voting for to impeach. Um, as they did, that those 10 Republicans who, as you said, were subject to the roll call that the former president made yesterday. Although they referred to him as the current president. But one of the manifestations of your talent, your political talent, and the regard with which your colleagues hold, in which your colleagues hold you, is that you are now part of the leadership team uh, in the House. There's been a lot said about the Republicans and the civil war that's going on within the Republican Party. Tell me about the dynamics within the Democratic Party and, uh, you know, you have your you, you're quite progressive uh, and uh, and yet you seem to travel in two worlds. But there's been a division between moderates in the House, uh, a lot of them from suburban areas like yours uh, and um, and uh, representatives from, you know, AOC and others from solidly uh, Democratic, mostly urban uh, districts. Uh, tell me about those dynamics and how you bridge those. Yeah, I, I'd say this, two, two things. One, to anyone who wonders uh, whether the divisions, to the extent there are any within the Democratic Party, are as uh, salient as those in the Republican Party, I'd point them to the press conference that uh, the minority leader, M- Mr. McCarthy, had with the conference chair which I'm sure you saw, uh, Representative yeah, that was That was awkward. You know, awkward, I mean, yes. It, it doesn't, so <laughs> I would encourage people to then watch the press conferences of uh, House Democratic leadership. And I think that they will find um, that, look, there are 
disagreements over policy, right? The, the Democratic Party is a big tent party. We have, uh, you know, from both ends of the spectrum, a lot of different ideological views across that spectrum as to, you know, different matters of public policy. And, and that's, that's good. That's healthy. I think that that's reflective yeah. of a party that's competing in a lot of different places in the country. And we ought to welcome <laughs> that. I think people would be surprised uh, that some of the members you just mentioned um, in the Democratic caucus, or, you know, that they are uh, close friends with some of the most conservative or moderate members of the House Democratic caucus. And I, I say that as someone who knows the freshman cl- the former freshman class, we're now sophomores, but the class yes. of 2018 really well, including uh, you know, the, our progressive members and also those members from really tough competitive districts. Uh, and again, I just, I know that yeah. from personal experience, not saying that there aren't big differences, but, you know. That's going to be good because uh, with, uh, with a very, very narrow margin and a lot of ambitions for legislation, I suspect that you're going to be doing a lot of diplomatic missions between now and 2022 among your colleagues. But because um, diversity is a great thing, but it brings with it its own challenges. And those are challenges for leadership. And you are on that track. Jonah Goose, it's really great to be with you. Great to meet you. I suspect this is just the first of many conversations that we'll have. And I, like many others, will be watching uh, what you do next. Well, the pleasure was all mine, David. It's nice to talk to you and to meet you as well. And uh, I appreciate you having me on the program. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.